Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're talking about a humble machine that has been used by countless authors to hammer out literary masterpieces. Yes, we're talking about typewriters. Joining me on the telephone from Garden City, New York is Tony Casillo. Tony is the author of Typewriters, Iconic Machines from the Golden Age of Mechanical Writing. Tony repairs typewriters, collects typewriters, and sells typewriters. His book features 80 of his own typewriters, manufactured between 1874, the very early days of typewriters, and 1969, when offices across the world rang to the sound of typewriters. Welcome, Tony. Hello, Richard, and thank you for having me on. You're welcome. It's, uh, it's nice to be speaking to you. Where and when did your, your journey with typewriters, your long journey with typewriters, begin? Well, Richard, my journey with typewriters began, I would say, basically in the late 1970s. I was employed as a repairman for a typewriter service company in Manhattan, in New York City. And I, I, for no apparent reason, I found myself in the back room of, of the typewriter shop where old abandoned typewriters were stored, and I stumbled on a 19th century typewriter, um, an Oliver, something like I'd never seen before. Um, and my curiosity uh, about this machine peaked at that moment. Um, I'd never given a second thought to the early history of typewriters, even though I was employed in that industry. Um, so I took it home. I looked it over very carefully, studied it, and, and realized that there was something that I didn't know about these early machines. I needed to know more. And what, what was that curiosity? What, what didn't you know? Was it the, the design? Was it the, the weight? It was, it was the, just the unusual departure from the modern machines that I was working on in the 1970s something so radically different and something I think what bothered me most at that point was that this there was an object that I knew nothing about um, I didn't know it existed and here I was making a living in this industry I needed to know more so in the 1970s you must have been repairing uh, heavy-duty office typewriters electric typewriters that were really used heavily in every office in New York City every office mainly I made a living servicing IBM typewriters um, I was on call when a typewriter broke in the 1970s you responded within hours um, you'd be holding up an office if they couldn't type right so after that discovering that dusty typewriter in the back room was there a moment after that when you knew you were going to become a typewriter collector? Well, it, it, it still stayed dormant. I carried that typewriter home on the, on the mass transit subway system um, during rush hour. Um, and and it, it sat in my basement, um, and, and my, it, it basically was a dormancy until one day I was thumbing through a trade publication and I saw an advertisement for another antique typewriter and I called the person who was offering it for sale and struck a deal and drove across two states to go get it um, 
And at that point, I knew this was bigger than I originally anticipated. Just when you carried the typewriter home on the on uh, public transit, how heavy was it? It was hefty, that's for sure. Was it? Were you standing, getting f- standing room only, Richard? Were you getting funny looks? Always, always. <laughs> um, I, I can't say I, I recall uh, in detail, but I, I, it didn't matter. The passion to get that typewriter out of that room and, and home into into safekeeping was was priority one. When you hear book collectors talking about um, the golden rules of book collecting, they talk about condition, condition, condition. And you mentioned that too in your book in terms of when you're thinking about purchasing a, a vintage typewriter. So what, what are the things you need to look for when, when you're considering picking one up or buying one or you already have one? Well, I'd have to say completeness because they're complex instruments. There are many parts. Um, they're subject to being missing, lost, or broken. Um, so completeness is always important. Uh, rust, because a lot of times these machines did not live charmed lives after you know their tour of duty in an office was finished. They might have been relegated to a basement or an attic or you know or a garage or a barn. So you know rust is always a factor. Um, and I also look for for machines that. Um, may have been dropped and, and damaged beyond repair. So I would say that the, the three most important things would be completeness, um, lack of rust, and whether or not a machine has been dropped. So if a, if a typewriter is 80, 90 years old, is there a good chance it could be functioning or more than likely it's gonna need some repair work? Most, most will not be functioning. Um, I always compare it to putting a car in a garage and, you know, expecting it to, to start after two decades of sitting there. It's not likely. And even if it did start, you know, there would be other issues. It's a mechanical object. So it, it's not likely that it'll work. It, it needs some attention. So if you do have a, a typewriter from, say, the 1920s, where on earth would you find spare parts for it? Um, well, it's a good question. There are no parts available um, through the normal channel. You'd, you'd basically want to find a donor machine, maybe one that was dropped, maybe one that was all rusted out, and you could cannibalize it for, for useful parts. Right. So now it now it sounds like you're talking about the the uh, vintage car uh, phenomenon, where people do exactly the same: have two cars and take from one to the other. Absolutely, and the last resort would be to to manufacture a part. If you needed one part and it was unobtainable, well, I mean, you can always you can always have one manufactured, or depending on how complicated that part is. Superb. So I've been uh, reading your your book this week. Um, it's a lovely book. Um, the descriptions are super interesting about the entrepreneurs and the companies, the various companies that went through and the different types of um, innovations, both the ones that worked and didn't work in terms of typewriter technology. But I was also struck that the book had an introduction um, from Tom Hanks. How on earth did you get Tom Hanks to provide a, an introduction to your book? Well, I've, I've done some work for Tom um, over the years. Um, he found me 
I believe, through my website, typewritercollector.com, and, and saw that I was repairing typewriters. He's a big fan of using a typewriter. He's a big fan of writing letters to his friends on a typewriter. And I, I, as I was in the process of writing the book, I thought, what could be better than asking him to write something for the book? It, it wasn't intended to be an introduction. It was, it was an essay, something, um, his thoughts about using a typewriter. So I wrote him a letter, and I asked if he would do it. Um, I received a reply. And the reply was basically, he'd love to do it, but he's very busy. He can't promise. And I was, I was okay with that. Um, I was so involved in writing the book that that was. I put that on the back burner. He asked me one thing though before um, I, they ended the conversation, and it was, "What's your deadline?" So I gave him my deadline. This was six months, six months ahead of the deadline. Well, I totally forgot about it. And two days before the deadline, I got an email from his assistant with his piece for the book. And he said, here's Tom's piece for the book. He wants to know how you'll like it. And it was pretty good. And it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I won't spoil it, but he does use the word, the words chick magnet in there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was a pleasant surprise. And, and again, I really didn't expect it. It, it. I just figured I would try, I would ask, and, you know, how could I not ask? I'm writing this book, so I should. Yeah. Um, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Exactly. So the book has 80 typewriters pictured inside it. That's, and they all belong to you, and so that's an awful lot of iron where are they kept? Where, where do you house them? Those 80 typewriters are either in my home or at work in my office on display when people come into my shop. And I, I have to add also, Richard, I probably own three times that many typewriters. I probably own about 250. So they must be in on every shelf, in every, every room. Every nook and cranny. <sighs> Every nook and cranny. Um, but I, I enjoy having them around. Um, I especially enjoy having them at work where I spend most of my, my day. Um, and I, I like people's reaction when they walk into the store and they see 20 typewriters inside a display case. Um, the average person doesn't encounter them um, regularly. And they're excited to see them. And everyone's got a typewriter story to tell me. So at that point, I listen. Right. So in terms of your shop, what, what is the, the biggest part of your business? Is it repairing or um, dealing in, in vintage typewriters, selling them? I do a little bit of everything. I, I buy, sell. Uh, I do a lot of uh, sales of ribbons, typewriter ribbons. Um, I do quite a few repairs. There aren't many repairmen left. Um, so that you know that that's a, a pretty large part of of uh, what we do here. Um, so it's a mix. So if again, if I if I talk about the book, um, there were all sorts of design styles in there. The the styles from the nineteen fifties and the sixties are particularly colourful and very much of the. I, I feel they're straight out of a madman set. Um, but what's your favourite era in typewriter history? 
For me, Richard, I'm a, I'm a 19th century person. I like cast iron and oak. Um, it's to me, it's the most charming. Uh, although I can appreciate all the different eras, um, I've got a soft spot for 19th century. So really, they're almost antiquarian typewriters. Exactly, you know, the Victorian era. Um, some of those designs are absolutely beautiful. Not not to take away from the 1950s and you know the Art Deco in the 30s. Uh, they they've all you know there were styles and they all industrial styles and designs all changed through the years. Different things were fashionable at different points in time. Um, but my personal favorite are 19th century. So a few years ago, I remember uh, George Bernard Shaw's typewriter being listed for sale on Abe Books, and it sold for around two and a half, three thousand um, dollars $3,000. i am just wondering if that is a big part of the uh, vintage typewriter business, that anyone, a typewriter owned by a celebrity or a person of significance, has the capacity for sell, to sell for a high price. Well... I think anything that celebrities have owned in the past sell for high prices. Typewriters are no different. Um, Ian Fleming's Gold Royal typewriter that he supposedly wrote, um, James Bond, uh, I believe sold for in excess of $100,000. And that was a gold typewriter? It was a gold-plated royal. Right. It's featured in the book. There's one in the book. Um, they're called the Golden Royal Typewriter. Um, and, it, and it sold in London at Christie's in the 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. And it was, it was definitely in excess of $100,000. Right. Okay. It makes sense. It makes sense. Um, now, how about young people? Do you get young people coming into your, your shop? Do you get young people asking you about what you do? I think most young people are interested in typing on their typewriters. Um, I think that some of the some of the machines that I have on display here um, it takes a special person, I think, with an eye for the unusual to appreciate it. So, how do you mean when you say young people are more interested in typing? They're not necessarily looking for a collectible cop, uh, copy. Correct. I think in the book, some of the early typewriters are just not meant for typing. A hundred, a hundred odd years later, right? Uh, but but the more modern machines, uh, you know, they're they're more interested in the functionality, right? Uh, and I guess if you think about it, someone who's grown up with a with a uh, an iPhone in their hand to suddenly stumble on a typewriter and and have an awakening, so to speak, um, that this machine can actually print a letter when I press the button down. It kind of reminds me of when I discovered that Oliver typewriter back in the 1970s, um, something I never knew existed. And I get that same look from them when they, they make this discovery. So on the other end of the scale, are there customers who buy typewriters purely for show and they never have an intention of striking a key? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of them are quite, I mean, some of them are just pretty. You know, if you, you have the variety of colors, you have the variety of different uh, functionality and designs, um, you, you can put a nice little assortment and it'd be very attractive. 
And do you get uh, institutions, uh, museums, buying buying them now? Um, I can't say that they come to me. Um, and I don't know if, if the institutions um, are buying them. I don't know any that are on public display in museums at this point in time. But give it time. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if... if one day, uh, you know, I'll see something where there's there's a show at a museum and they've put a collection together. Yeah, it seems to make sense. Um, Just a matter of time. Yeah, I think it's a matter of time, particularly if they pick up maybe, a, say, a famous author or some somebody like that leaves them their, their uh, papers and documents. They may sure. well include a typewriter. Mm-hmm. Are, are typewriters still being manufactured at all? Good question, Richard. Um, there, there are one or two very inexpensive typewriters that are being manufactured overseas. They're a low quality, um, and they're not expensive. And I think that, that most people who purchase one would be disappointed in the functionality of the machine. Um, I wouldn't call it a respectable typewriter um, in comparison to to what was being manufactured in the 1960s or 50s or, or earlier. Right. Okay. So, really, the do you think the machines that were made in the 60s and the 70s were as good as that technology was going to get in terms of functionality? I think the peak the peak for, for typewriter manufacturing was probably in the 1950s. Um, I think that you had a half a century of, of perfection, perfecting the object. You know, all the mistakes, all the bugs, and all the wrinkles were taken out. Um, and by the 50s, we reached a point where they were just as good as they were ever going to be. Um, you had electric typewriters. Um, they were gaining in popularity. You had great portable typewriters that, that really worked well. Um, and after after those fifty years of, of you know manufacturing, they, they got it right. Okay. One final question, which is uh, a bookish question, and we ask this to all our guests. But what book or books are you currently reading? Uh, currently, Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, and what's that about? It's a fellow Long Islander um, investor started the hedge fund Bridgewater Associates, and he's, he's a legend in this field. Um, I've been wanting to read it, so I finally started. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. So that's all we have time for this week. I want to say a huge thank you to Tony Casillo for joining us. Tony's book, published by Chronicle Books, is available all over the place. It was published a couple of years ago. Uh, But you can learn more about everything he does, and he does a lot, at typewritercollector.com, typewritercollector.com. Or you can pop into his store. And thank you, and we'll see you all soon. Thank you, Richard.